Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we chat with social psychologist and best-selling author Jonathan Haidt about the moral intuitions and untruths that separate us, but perhaps don't need to. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. We are very honored today to have a chance to speak with Dr. Jonathan Haidt, social psychologist at New York University's Stern School of Business. Dr. Haidt received his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in 1992 and taught for 16 years at Mr. Jefferson's University, the University of Virginia. And just as I have turned my own psychology PhD into brilliant success as a podcaster, uh, Dr. Haidt has managed to find a little success himself, uh, most obviously as the author or co-author of two New York Times bestsellers. That is two more than I have, actually, come to think of it. Uh, and those books are uh, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, and The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, the latter book being co-authored with Greg Lukanoff, uh, founder of FIRE. Foundation for Individual Rights uh, in Education. I think I have that acronym correct. But Dr. Hyde is not just a thinker. Uh, if, if we allude to the title of our podcast here, he is also a doer, having co-founded several organizations whose goal is to help people understand each other, live and work near each other, and even learn from each other despite their moral differences. And those uh, organizations include Heterodox Academy, Open Mind, and Ethical Systems. We'll We'll come back and we'll be talking about Heterodox Academy, I think, at least a little today, if not the others. So welcome, Dr. Hype. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. I, I didn't know that you had a, a PhD in psychology. I, I hope that it has at least enriched your life and made you much better at dealing with people. <laughs> um, possibly. Sometimes I am told that it has. I think other times I am told that it, it hasn't. Uh, yes, the University of Texas uh, at Austin. I started in clinical psychology. Uh, after a year, uh, my uh, professors kindly uh, um, moved me out of clinical psychology. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was not great. Uh, I, it was, um, I didn't like to hear people's problems, which turns out not to be uh, a great thing for someone who's in clinical psychology. When I, yeah, when I, when I uh, decided I was going to go for a PhD in psychology, my, my girlfriend at the time said, but John, you don't like people enough. And I had to explain, like, no, no, it's not that kind of psychology. I'm going to actually, you know, try to figure out how people work. Right, exactly. Uh, not liking them might help with respect to that goal to some extent. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. A little distance. No, um, yes, I, it is in psychology, which has made me very interested in your work ever since I first discovered it many years ago. Um, and it's, a, it's work that has met its moment, uh, I think. Uh, luckily, I mean, very fortunately for you, I, and um, maybe unfortunately for some of the rest of us, <laughs> in the sense that um, understanding those who are different, living and working happily with them, uh, seems to become very, very hard for people. Uh, so it's a good time to to dive into thinking about why that might be. 
So I, I thought we'd talk about your your those books that I mentioned um, uh, in the introduction uh, before, is just sort of getting your view on uh, aspects of our contemporary situation, which has obviously um, gone through a lot of changes and um, crises over the last year or so. Um, we'll just start with the righteous mind. Um, I I think many of our listeners will have. If not read the entire book, then maybe have seen your TED Talk or have read articles related to The Righteous Mind. I think The Atlantic is where the original article came out. Is that right? No, that, that was for The Coddling of the American uh-huh. Mind in 2015. Um, but there, you know, you've written a number of articles related to these theses. I think, at least for me, uh, there are two, two lasting ideas, big ideas that come out of reading The Righteous Mind. Um, one concerns the writer and the elephant as an image that explains how our minds work as opposed to how we like to think they work, perhaps. Um, it, 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 I mean this as a compliment. It's a, uh, I don't know what you would say about this, but it's essentially an extended elaboration on, well, you say this in the book, on the, uh, the thought of David Hume uh, that we overrate uh, uh, the, um, uh, the writer and underrate the elephant. Can you unpack this idea for people who are not familiar with it or who haven't read your book? Sure. So uh, I'm a social psychologist who studies morality. And uh, in graduate school uh, at, at the University of Pennsylvania in the, in the early 90s, I began studying moral psychology. And at the time, everybody was focused on moral reasoning. How does moral reasoning develop in children? Things like that. But it was very clear to me, in part from beginning to work, look at morality across cultures, that morality is really much more emotional and visceral. And I grew up with two sisters, and we fought all the time and, and made up all the time. And it just, you know, the, what I was reading in the books about reasoning just didn't, didn't fit. Like, when you're mad at someone, all your reasoning goes in one direction, and you cannot be talked out of it. Uh, and I see that with my own children. And so I found that the, the ideas of David Hume, the, the Scottish philosopher David Hume, were, were just brilliant psychologically. Uh, most philosophers aren't that good at psychology, but Hume was great at, at philosophy and psychology. And he famously said, reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. And, you know, if, if anybody doubted that that was true back in the 90s when I started my research, I would challenge anyone to maintain in 2021 that that is not completely accurate. Um, you know, and as we know, it, when you, you know, it's, so it's not that reason doesn't matter, and it's not that people don't change their mind, but in the kinds of interactions that we now increasingly have with strangers and no reputational, you know, no reward for reaching agreement, rather reward for attacking the other person more strongly. We'll get into this later, but social media has really warped the social fabric so that all the problems that I wrote about in The Righteous Mind in 2012, almost all of them are much worse today. Yeah, well, you've anticipated a question I was going to ask you, like how much. Um, uh, okay, so uh, explain the before we go on. Explain the image of the writer and the elephant. So the elephant is this emotional, raw uh, experience, right? That um, that the writer only barely has any control over. Yeah. So my first book, uh, the Happiness Hypothesis, uh, was about ten ancient ideas. I I, I read all the ancient uh, wisdom literature I could find, east and west. And I took out every psychological claim, uh, and there were 10 that were really just you know, a brilliant, widespread. And the first is that the mind is divided into parts that sometimes conflict. And so 
I, I always, I, I think in metaphors and when I speak and when I try to teach students, I try to give them metaphors and analogies. And the analogies that the ancients used often involved animals. They were, they lived intimately with animals. We don't anymore. But they all were familiar with trying to get, you know, an ox or a cow or a sheep or some animal to do what you want. And so Plato and many other ancients said that the mind is like a charioteer trying to steer his two horses. He needs the horses to go, but, you know, they're kind of stupid and they have minds of their own. And, and it's a struggle because everybody can see that people struggle against their own impulses. So when I was writing the, the happiness hypothesis, I wanted a good metaphor, but all that we were learning in psychology was, you know what? The, the, the charioteer, the driver, reason, as Plato said, is actually not that smart, not that independent, and that, in fact, it's the horses that are in control. But that doesn't make any sense. That's a terrible metaphor. So I just said, well, we need a much more intelligent animal. So I picked an elephant. It's intelligent. It's big. And so imagine a small boy sitting on the back of a large elephant. And if the elephant has no desires and the boy tries to, you know, tug it to the left, it'll go to the left. But as soon as the elephant really wants something, this, the boy on his back can't really force it to do anything. So that's, what, that's why I, I, I coined this metaphor of um, the mind is divided like a, a rider, which is conscious reasoning, on the back of the large elephant, uh, which is especially intuition. It's all the automatic processes. And I found that this metaphor, uh, so when I, you know, when I die, I, you know, Thomas Jefferson had just three things he wanted on his grave, one of which was that he founded the University of Virginia. And so one of mine will be, he's the guy who made up the rider and elephant <laughs> metaphor. Because psychotherapists love it. Like a lot of people really like it because it really helps them understand themselves. And especially, how do you influence other people? Um, and this is for all, everybody listening, you know, we all have to persuade people, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, people you're negotiating with or bosses or employees or donors or whatever. Uh, and the main piece of advice I have for you is talk to the elephant first. Don't go in with, here are the reasons why my proposal is good for you. I mean, that's better than saying, here are the reasons why it's good for right. me. But don't start with the reasons. Start by appealing to the elephant. Develop trust. Develop a sense of a shared future or some sort of bonds of the past. Get them excited about the vision. So if the elephant is leaning your way, then all you need to do is give good reasons to the rider and you're done. The deal's closed. But if the elephant's leaning against you, there's no amount of reasoning you can give that's going to close the deal. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because as we were talking about just prior to recording, um, uh, and there are a number of, of people in the world of philanthropy and fundraising who listen to this podcast. And as part of our training, when we talk to our own staff, as well as um, people who work for other uh, uh, nonprofit organizations or in the world of fundraising or even in, in, um, uh, in program world, uh, we use your metaphor all the time. Talk to the elephant. <laughs> and, and people tend to... Yeah, once you talk to the writer, um, uh, uh, way uh, too much or too quickly, I guess, perhaps, rather than, than getting the elephant steered in the right direction first. That's right. So, uh, so especially in political life, if you only talk to the elephant, then you're a demagogue. And that's what our founding fathers warned about. And that's what we see with many of the populist movements that are erupting all around the world. But, you know, if you have good arguments and good evidence, uh, then just wise persuasion is first talk to the elephant, and then give all your arguments and evidence. And if we look at America's political history, we've had three presidents in my lifetime who were great at it. And I imagine it's going to you know, jump out uh, at everyone who, who they were. 
certainly Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. And uh, Barack Obama was brilliant as an orator, although, uh, and he was he uh, he really understood this, but he was he was not quite as much of a genius in just daily conversation as were Reagan and Clinton. Uh, but those three really knew how to talk to the elephant, and the Democrats kept nominating people like Michael Dukakis or. Um, uh, Al Gore or John Kerry, who were just not very good at it. Yes, a little more writer focused. Uh, not to, to leave this metaphor too quickly, um, and this is going in a little bit different direction than the political, but uh, it seems it, this is why it seems to me that um, ancient uh, writers, uh, um, philosophers, or, or thinkers, let's put it that way, um, would insist on moral education as being essential to being able to do good moral reasoning. Uh, is that right? Like an education of the emotions and the way and, and habit uh, as, as the only way you can actually think rightly is to have uh, get that right. Absolutely, absolutely. And I noticed on your on your web page where you have the about us section, our philosophy. I noticed that you quote Tocqueville, and you quote one of my favorite sociologists, Robert Nisbet. Uh, and so I think yes, you. It looks from your site as though you really understand what the ancients understood. Um, about society and about uh, the need for people to be bound into a society. And so I just want to give you, there's one quote. uh, Oh, here it is. Yes. So the ancients, so all over the world, the way that children have always been educated is with stories, often within a religious context, and with an overarching framework of virtue ethics. That is the goal of child rearing, the goal of education is to cultivate virtues in kids. And America dropped that, especially in the 60s and 70s. We had this ridiculous thing called the values clarification movement. And, oh, we shouldn't, tell, we shouldn't tell children what to think. We should tell them, teach them how to think. And, of course, they have to figure out their own values, which is like telling children, we shouldn't teach them English. They should develop their own language. No, no, you're being prepared to be successful in a society. Right. You've got to learn. The, you, know, you have to understand what the virtues are and how to cultivate them and why they're good for you. Um, and so uh, moral instruction kind of fell out in the late 20th century. And that's why we saw the rise of character education. So I think there was a lot of philanthropic interest, uh, especially on the right, uh, in the 80s and 90s as a way to fill that void. And now, you know, ironically, all the secular schools that were supposed to be going in for secular education, a lot of them have adopted this quasi-religious, uh, you know, indoctrination system of, well, you know, wokeness is the, that's right. is the, is the common term for it. But it's a real problem because it really does have a lot of the hallmarks of a religion. And, you know, my daughter right now is learning. She comes home, they're learning about religion in, in sixth grade, and they learned about Jainism and Hinduism. Uh, and, you know, soon they'll be learning about Judaism. Um, and so that's great. I want them to learn about all sorts of religions. And my high school kid, I'm happy to have him learn about critical race theory and other things. But, you know, I don't want the school to like require my kid to be a Jain or a Hindu or a Mormon uh, or to embrace, you know, these new ideologies. So uh, maybe we're jumping ahead no, of ourselves, no, but this is very okay. much on my mind. That's obviously, yeah, and I imagine, yeah. it, I imagine it's on the mind of a lot of your, a lot of your listeners. I, I imagine too. it is too. It's certainly much on my mind. And uh, from what I hear from our listeners, it's on their mind as well. And it, it is that the best way then to I was going to ask you this question, how you understand the wokeness phenomenon, essentially filling this void, this vacuum of moral, uh, um, giving the elephant direction. I mean, I don't want to keep mixing the metaphor. I don't want to strain the metaphor. Too much. So um, 
so when uh, when Greg Lukianoff and I wrote The Coddling the American Mind, it's because Greg started to see some weird stuff happening on campus in 2014. Uh, he saw students, for the first time, students were demanding protections from books and speakers and ideas. They were demanding trigger warnings, safe spaces, microaggression training, bias response teams, all this stuff that was nowhere to be seen in 2011, 2012. And then suddenly, 2013, 2014, Greg starts seeing all this stuff. And uh, Greg, who had learned CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy when he had a suicidal depression in 2007, Greg saw students making the exact cognitive distortions that he had learned to stop doing. And so Greg came to me with this idea that somehow colleges are making students sick, um, you know, think in distorted ways, and this is going to lead to them being depressed. And I thought this was a great idea, and I suggested we write it up and we submit it to the Atlantic. Well, we didn't know it at the time. This is 2015. We didn't know it at the time. But the mental health epidemic, the depression and anxiety epidemic, had begun in 2012-2013 among American teenagers. We first we were we were among the first to really see the full force of it on college campuses, uh, because all of a sudden all of our mental health centers were flooded. Uh, right around 2015 is when the flood hit, and we began to see this weird uh, moral system that had no name at the time, but it was later called wokeness. And then only a year or two ago did we get the data from 2015 that showed that something strange happened to white people, to white liberals, and especially white uh, liberal women, that their attitudes really, really changed on matters of race and immigration in 2015. And it's, it's stunning, the, the graphs. Um, so anyway, in other words, white liberals suddenly moved to the left of African-Americans on all kinds of questions about race, racial justice, and immigration. Right. And this is pre-Trump. This is not 2016. Exactly. That's right. That's right. So this is called the Great Awakening. That uh, Iglesias at Box coined the term because it was like a religious revival. revival. And some of the doctrines of it are, um, you know, everything is to be understood through the lens of power and privilege. Um, everyone can be assigned identities, you know, white or non-white, male or non-male. Um, tall or not tall, a fertile or not fertile, almost anything you can imagine, make it a binary dimension. And the people who have the powerful side are the bad people who oppress everyone else. So everyone else has to unite against the bad people. So the victims are the good people. Anyway, it's, you know, it's not that there's zero truth to this way of looking at things, but if this is the primary lens that young people are adopting in college, you know, they're crippling their ability to understand the world or to influence it or to enjoy it. And here's the most stunning thing, which, and this was not known a year ago, and I've just been digging into the data recently. When you look at the mental health crisis and you zoom in on what's happened, it turns out that there's a correlation with ideology. So people who say they're liberal are more depressed, but this is only true for white people. And so uh, when Zach Goldberg, a graduate student, first uh, pub, uh, pub, put this out on Twitter, this digging into public data sets from Pew and uh, American National Election Survey, when he first put this out, I said, you know, I said, can you zoom in, um, you know, zoom in for just women and then just young women, because Gen Z is, is really where the, the most problems, uh, the problems are, the depression is. And it turns out that the, the percentage that have a mental disorder, that say that they have a mental disorder goes up and up and up so that when you look at just, so no group is above 35% um, saying, yes, I have a mental disorder. And the conservative groups are all below 25%. But if you zoom in on young, um, so uh, 18 to 30 years old, uh, 
women who say, uh, white women who say that they are on the left, you get 54% of them say they've been told they have a mental disorder. That's and this, that is it, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah. But this really vindicates Greg's initial idea that if you embrace this way of thinking, you know, that as American society has gotten better and better, fairer and fairer, more civil rights for everyone, you know, amazingly speedy uh, uh, increase in rights for LGBT. Uh, so, you know, everything's getting better and better. The environment is getting better other than global warming. But there's all kinds of good things happening. As this is happening, if some young people buy into this ideology that everything is power structures, everything is shot through with white supremacy, well, yeah, of course they're depressed. You know, they're missing the greatest, you know, uh, what Deidre McCloskey has called the great enrichment that began in the 1600s. Like, you know, it's, things are getting better and better. Poverty is going down. All sorts of good things are happening. But some people are trapped in this ideology that tells them not just everything is terrible, but that the power structures hate them and will only pay them 78 cents for every dollar that will, they will pay to the man next to them, uh, which is not true at all. That, that, that wage gap statistic is, is, a, is only true if you just look at raw numbers and you don't take account of hours worked or occupation worked in. Anyway, sorry, I'm going no, on. This, on is, this is great. So uh, my question to you about that is, um, <clears throat> do you think it is actually a higher incidence of, of mental disorder? Is it or is it also, it's probably a both and, a high um, embracing um, or looking for <laughs> mental disorder in the sense that victimization now confers um, uh, uh, prestige and status? That's right. So, so I, I see the point of your question. That's a very good question. Uh, so first, is it just that because it's prestigious to be, to, to be mentally ill or to have depression, anxiety? Um, it's prestigious to be a victim. Is it just that people are claiming this, but they're not really uh, depressed or anxious, and they're not really feeling like victims? To which I would say, first, um, there's a lot of research in psychology, including clinical psychology, that when you label people and they embrace the label, it becomes self-fulfilling. Yes, true. So it is incredibly foolish. Uh, you know, I mean, the idea, the idea of encouraging, you know, if a gay student comes to NYU, this is like the most gay-friendly school in the most gay-friendly neighborhood, the West Village, you know, it, it, that you could possibly find. But if a gay student comes to NYU, that student will be will refer to him or herself as a marginalized student. I am marginalized. I have a marginalized identity. You know, so the point is, uh, if you label people and then they embrace it, it actually becomes self-fulfilling. Uh, the second thing is we know that it, the mental illness stats, it's not just that they're changing the the threshold or they're changing their embracing identity because you see the same pattern for self-harm and suicide. Right. And those are not self-report. Those are hard data on hospital admissions and actual deaths. Yes. And that's what I actually, I thought of that after I asked the question that, that you don't, one doesn't fake that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> that is, that is, they say hard data doesn't just self-report. Um, at the same time, isn't it also the case? And I like that we're just sort of veering wherever we want to go here. Uh, isn't it also the case that, um, uh, isn't suicide and certainly um, lifespan, suicide up and lifespan down among white males? And yes, that's right. That's, that's a, a somewhat different problem that I'm not an, at all an expert in. But yes, life expectancy is decreasing among, um, among non-college educated people, particularly white people, particularly white men. And that's in part because of the opioid crisis. Um, it's also partly the collapse of institutions. And so if you go back to 1960, I think it is, 
um, if you look at the top quarter and the bottom quarter, the income distribution, their likelihood to be married wasn't very different, and their likelihood to be uh, going to church regularly or religious worship regularly wasn't very different. And since then, many people have, have observed um, that the college-educated have stayed with these good habits. The college-educated, um, you know, they might talk like liberals on matters of sex and marriage, but they, they act like conservatives, uh, whereas, you know, more the working class, and, and in some cases, you know, some conservatives will talk like conservatives, act like, well, libertines in, in a sense. And so getting back again to, you know, what you write about, about the importance of meeting institutions in civil society, about churches, synagogues, rotary clubs. Um, these are the, in The Righteous Mind, I call these the moral exoskeletons that we need, uh, that human beings can't just figure out their own morality. They need a sort of a moral exoskeleton, which is given to them by religion or, or something. Uh, and if there's nothing there, if you tear down you know, uh, religion, as has happened in a stunningly rapid turn since 2000, uh, recent data just came out last week showing a stunning decline in people who even identify as belonging to a religion. It dropped below 50%, I believe, um, just recently. So if you have this quick drop in religion, many have been writing about, including me and Greg, about how people still have religious minds. And what they're, what they're going to do is they're going to embrace something that fits the same slots as religion, but is not tested by time. And that is wokeness. Uh, you know, it's also on the far right, you also have all kinds For of sure. crazy conspiracy theories and you have neo-Nazis. So, uh, you know, I'm a nonpartisan. I see the madness on both extremes. But yes, wokeness, I do believe, um, is functions structurally just like a religion and specifically Christianity. It's, it's kind of a form of Christianity with no grace, no redemption, no forgiveness, um, just bitterness. None of the good stuff. Uh, <laughs> None of the good stuff. You got it. That's right. We'll be right back with Dr. Uh, Jonathan Haidt uh, and, and keep talking about uh, uh, Wokeness, his book, The Righteous Mind and the Coddling of the American Mind and what they mean for the Art of Association uh, here in a second. Time for a practicality, as we call them, uh, and happy to have with me today my partner, Doug Schneider. How are you, Doug? I'm doing great, Jeremy. How are you? Good, good. Doug is a managing partner here at American Philanthropic, uh, works out of our Westchester, Pennsylvania office, and uh, unaccountably is a huge soccer fan. That's, that's one thing people should know about you. It's called the beautiful game for a reason, Jeremy, because it's beautiful. And um, no, no standing around in soccer. So there might be some rolling around and, you know, uh, fake fake injuries and all that. But, you know, it's just acting. It goes with the beauty part. You know that my principal objection is the penalty shot. That it, That's too easy. <laughs> I did not know that. I did not yes, know that. It's too easy. It should be. It's like if a free throw is worth 20 points. That that's This is my principal objection to soccer. Otherwise, I'm actually pretty much okay with it, except that it's not American. That's, that's well, maybe I should. Maybe I should. Yeah. I should pepper you with questions about baseball and intentional walks and things of that sort. So, yeah. yeah uh, next time we will, we'll switch. We'll turn the tables and uh, yes, <laughs> we can do a whole, we'll do a whole show just on baseball and soccer, but that's not why we're talking right now. Uh, besides being um, a big fan of the beautiful game, you also, you do a lot of strategic uh, development plan creation uh, work uh, with our clients 
um, a ton of it. And so just talk for a couple of minutes about that here today. Um, what, okay, what do people not get right? right? They're going to go into a strategic planning process, um, you know, specifically with respect to your development program. Um, what do people need to know in order for that planning process to be successful? Uh, it's a good question. I'd say there's a few things. The the uh, couple things that come to mind immediately are actually giving it the time that it needs. I think sometimes there's a, a sense of urgency. And I can understand that, but like a rush to get it done. And they just want to get it done, get it across the finish line. And so therefore, uh, there's a tendency not to do it uh, well uh, and thoroughly. Uh, so I think slowing down taking time to prioritize the actual planning process and then going through and asking themselves the right questions and answering those questions is really important. And, and on that point, when we do planning with clients, we've have found, and this is just through our work over the years that having a firm foundation on, on which to build is really, really important. And when it comes to planning, doing the assessment and the audit and taking stock of where where you are currently as an organization with regard to resources and staffing and the programs and and just slowing down to take stock um, and doing that intentionally and doing it well really sets you up, sets the organization up for a successful strategic plan. Right. And so and just kind of to, to elaborate that then for people, when we talk about the foundation of a strategic development plan, we mean is like doing an audit or assessment, however you want to put it, of your current development program. Where, Correct. how exactly, what are you doing? <laughs> how much of it are you doing? How well is it working? How does it compare to uh, your peer organizations? Uh, is that what we're talking about? Correct, that's exactly right. Yeah, and we look at some you know broad categories. We have a, a system and a way we go about the process, but we wanna take a look at staffing and leadership. We wanna take a look at the technology and resources and operation side. How you're, how are you acquiring donors? Um, what is the process for that? What does your file look like? The composition, the foundations, you know, take just going through all that and then comparing to similarly sized organizations. Uh, and we have great information data uh, from the surveys that we've done now for several years. And so you can really see how you stock up. Are you, you know, are you strong in this area? Are you weak in this area? Um, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You really got to get down to numbers when you're doing this process. So much of planning is, it's a math situation in certain ways. Like if you want to go from A to B as an organization, you really need to know what that means numerically, right? With respect to, okay, we're, how, did, how does your donor base need to change? You know, um, how much more do you need to raise? How, how would you go about doing that? Um, there's a lot of math involved, it seems to me. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But you can, you can only do the math if you know what you're starting. <laughs> exactly. You're starting. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise, you know where you're starting from. It's, it's useless. And one other thing you said, I think that's really important is when it comes to strategic planning, the process, the journey, so to speak, painful as it may be at times, that's the whole value. I mean, and I should say it's a whole value, but it's like 80% of the value, right? I mean, yes, you have a plan at the end, but it's really all the stuff you learn going through the planning process, you know, the way you clarify your goals and figure out where you really are uh, and, you know, think through how you're going to get to where you want to go. Don't you agree? Like, we never talked about this, but it seems to me like that's the majority of the value. 
Sure, absolutely. And I would also add to that in the process and when it's done right and you and you bring in the right folks, certainly staff. And, and at times with development plans, I mean, oftentimes you think it's broader strategic plans, the board involvement, but there's a time and place, I think, for the proper board members, uh, maybe the chair to be involved in the development plan, or at least speak into the process. But the, it becomes internalized and people own it. And there's a sense of being a part of this together and alignment you know, across uh, the staff and maybe even across broader departments, depending on how that plan is used. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that all that's the process is important, I would say, for internalizing it, ownership and accountability. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. Very well done. Well, thanks, man. Uh, good tips. Appreciate it. We are back uh, with Dr. Jonathan Haidt, um, social psychologist at New York University, author of The Righteous Mind, also co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, I, I want to talk about one, there's a lot to talk about, and we've been going all over the place, which is great, but there's one part of The Coddling of the American Mind that I want to make sure that we do talk about because it's um, very germane to um, our concerns about civil society and mediating institutions and that sort of thing. And it's um, about play. It's very surprising. It's one of the, um, I guess when you hear it, it's not surprising, but I was surprised to read it on how um, the death of unsupervised play, uh, uh, unscheduled play um, is very corrosive and it turns out in the art of democracy, the, the habits of democracy that we need that we need to cultivate in order to have a democracy. Can you explain that finding and that argument? So um, this was the most fun chapter to write, uh, all the research on the effects of play. And so the thing to uh, realize is that we're mammals. All mammals play. So if you look at, you know, baby mice, baby dogs, baby whales, if you're a mammal, you have this big brain, comparatively, and you have an extended childhood in which your mother or parents um, invest a lot in you in order to grow your brain. Um, but if you just stay with your parents, you don't get to grow your brain. That's where you're safe. Right. So mammals are programmed to, 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 you know, you find your safe base, your parent, your attachment figure. And then that gives you the confidence to go out into the world at first, just a little bit at a time. And then you get more confidence, you go out further and further. And this is the way mammals always have been, and this is the way Homo sapien mammals have, were up until about 1990. And uh, so I was born in 1963, and so my entire life, there was a giant crime wave. It began in the late 60s, and it just vanished mysteriously during the 90s. Um, so even, even Gen X, I'm at the end of the baby boomers, but baby boomers and Gen X and the early millennials, we all went out to play between ages of six and eight is when we were let out. I've, I've done this poll all over the country. It was, you know, first, it's first, second or third grade. That's when kids got to play without supervision. And when you're playing without supervision, you have to make the rules consensually. You have to learn to enforce the rules. You have to learn that, you know what, sometimes there are reasons to have exceptions to the rules. You know, this kid has a broken leg, so we'll give him an extra five seconds or whatever it is. So you learn, kids learn so much by having to work out problems and conflicts themselves. And we did that all during the crime wave. And then suddenly, in the 1990s, we began to freak out about child abduction. Now, there are almost no child abductions in this country 
other than by the non-custodial parent in a divorce case. It's a you know, hundred times a year a stranger kidnaps a kid. It's, it's almost unheard of. But because of cable TV, we suddenly all heard about it all the time. So we freak out and we think if your kid is outside unsupervised, they'll be snatched. So we, we lock them up. We don't let them out. Um, and um, so anyway, I could go on and on about this. But the, but the point is, the point is that free play is, an, is as essential. It's much more essential than vitamin C. I mean, you, well, <laughs> you need vitamin C. It's as essential as vitamin That's C. That's great. Uh, and it would be as if in the early 90s, we just decided no more vitamin C because there were three cases of kids who overdosed on vitamin C. So no more vitamin C. And I think that's what the CDC would say if they were in charge of things back then. But anyway, um, uh, just you know, I'm re- referring to the fact that they just uh, suspended the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because there were six cases of blood clots. Really? Uh, out of, yeah, out of millions and millions of doses given, there were six cases in which there were blood clots and two of them were somewhat serious. Anyway, don't get me started yeah, on okay. that. Uh, but, but, but actually, you know what? Again, it is this safetyism mindset. It's this mindset. Let's always go for the worst. into our discussion is safetyism. Like there, this is a, yeah. sort of a, a brutalist right. ideology that um, is, is cuts across even partisan lines in many ways, doesn't it? That's right. So uh, safetyism is the irrational worship of safety. Of course, we want our kids to be safe. And I'm glad that consumer products are safer for kids. Um, but as the world's gotten physically safer and safer, and safer and safer from crime, we've, we've lowered the bar. And we freak out about any conceivable risk to our kids, not realizing that by overprotecting them, by denying them free play, by protecting them from stress, by protecting them from insults, by protecting them from unpleasant situations, it's as if we are preventing them from walking. You know, if we said, oh, walking is too dangerous because you might fall. Well, that would be really stupid. And in a sense, we're saying free play is too dangerous because you might get hurt. So anyway... Is our um, conception of health just too narrow? Uh, it, it's only biological health. It, it, you've you've already brought up like these real mental health epidemics and crises that that don't seems to me get all that much attention. I would say that our conception uh, is not at all just physical. It's become very much about emotional and mental Ooh, health, right. which in general I'm a f- in favor of, but only if it's done right. And what we've done is we have embraced some kind of wacky California, you know, psychological progressive ideas about stress and self-esteem. You know, that was a terrible mistake to embrace self-esteem in the 1980s. Yeah, you know, healthy people have higher self-esteem, but it's because they did things to earn it. If you, if you just tell kids you're great and they don't learn how to earn it, you're setting themselves up for disappointment and failure. So anyway, and that we did the same thing with stress. Yes, stress is bad. But only chronic stress. Chronic stress, you know, if you keep your stress systems turned on every day, you know, for months, yeah, you're going to get stress-related disorders and your brain is going to change and see the world as more threatening. And you might be right that it's more threatening. So chronic stress is bad, but we overcorrected and we got this stupid idea that stress is bad. No, stress is essential. Kids have to experience stress. And then they learn that situations, uh, can, that they, they can face situations and then they're not, they're not stressed about them. Uh, and so we, we see the you know, things like kids freak, you know, kids come to college now and they'll freak out if they, if, you know, if there's a cockroach in their room or if there's a, a mouse or something, you know, they'll call the police uh, because they've, they've been protected from things. They've never had to deal with things. So I don't want to be critical of Gen Z because it's not at all their fault. Um, they, they are the generation that have the bad luck to be born just as their parents and everyone else in America and Canada uh, and the UK to some extent 
We're freaking out about smaller and smaller and non-existent fears. And then they got anti-bullying policies after Columbine. So that was 1999. By 2001, most states have mandated anti-bullying. And while I can't prove that this is causal, um, uh, and of course, bullying that goes on for more than a day is terrible and should be stopped. But what happened, once again, was um, conflict is often seen as bullying. The bar for what counts as bullying has come down so low that kids don't get practice in conflict. Right. So the, the subtitle of our book is um, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And that's exactly what we've done over and over again, trying to help kids without a proper understanding that they're anti-fragile, they need challenge, they need free play, they need to sometimes be afraid of something and overcome it, not realizing all these things, we've protected them and protected them and protected them, and now they're more anxious than ever and more fragile. What has the role of, um, you mentioned social media earlier, one of my questions I was going to ask you is, on a 1 to 10 scale, how much of a disaster has social media been for humanity? Yeah, so there's two different there's two different major harms. So, you know, just to be clear, the internet is absolutely fantastic. It does some bad things, but the cost benefit ratio for the internet is wildly positive. Now, let's zoom in on social media. That is platforms on which users create content and others including strangers rate and evaluate that content. Are we better off because we have that? Well, you know, maybe there are some things that are good about it, but there are clearly some things that are terrible about it, especially for teenagers and especially for teenage girls. And so on the democracy front, um, social media has made it really easy to tear things down. Uh, We thought uh, in the beginning of the Arab Spring back in 2009, many people thought that social media was going to be a great boon for democracy. It's going to depose tyrants. But it turns out social media is really good at tearing things down, but it never builds up anything. So we have more and more instability, more and more uh, distrust of everything and everyone, um, almost all institutions. And so social media, I believe, has been terrible for democracy and terrible for the United States, uh, all kinds of conspiracy theories, all kinds of polarization, hatred. So um, that's one battle I'm fighting is to find ways to reform social media so it's not such an outrage platform. Uh, But the other domain in which it's harmful is mental health. And we have a sudden, very steep, almost like a hockey stick great shaped graph of depression, anxiety, and self-harm um, for girls, even more than boys. It begins in 2020, uh, plus or minus a year, depending on whether you're where you are in the US or Canada or the UK. So it just comes out of nowhere, starts shooting up. And that's what Greg began to see in 2013, 2014. And not coincidentally, even though social media comes out in the early 2000s, it only gets really engaging between 2009 and 2011, because that's when Facebook introduces the like button and Twitter copies it. Twitter introduces the retweet button and Facebook copies it. And suddenly there's a lot more feedback and we turn an entire generation of kids. They flood onto social media around 2010, 2011. They're all on it every day, daily. Uh, By 2011, they weren't on it daily in 2008. So kids are flooding onto it, and it's a system in which other kids are doling out reinforcements and punishments, just like B.F. Skinner training pigeons. And what is he training? And what is he training? What are people training each other to do? Um, well, um, especially Instagram, um, you know, Instagram, which is visual. Instagram has a, you know, Twitter is a dumpster fire. Twitter's full of nasty stuff. Instagram is not. But it turns out that even the nice stuff is really bad for young girls, because. All these other girls are showing off their perfect lives, 
And if, I mean, they're just stunning demonstrations of the beauty filters. So girls now are, they show themselves as being much more beautiful than they are in real life, which, you know, girls already had huge problems with eating disorders and social comparison, objectification. So social media multiplies all of that by 10. So it's not a coincidence uh, that the girls' rate goes up much higher than the boys'. It's not a coincidence that the steepest percentage increase are the 10 to 14-year-old girls, the preteens, who should not even be on social media. Um, but they just lie about their age. There's no stop. There's no check. There's no obstacle. They just lie about their age. They're on Instagram by sixth grade, at least in New York City, my, my, my kids' schools. Um, so anyway, I could talk forever about this. But social media, um, social media, it wasn't bad until 2009. And by 2012, it has changed the fabric of social space-time so that everything is going haywire. Our politics, politics and democracies around the world, um, uh, you know, misinformation, teen mental health, craziness at universities. We now live in a topsy-turvy world uh, that is rapidly changing, in which truth is hard to find, and in which there is no more authority, no more trust. Now, ask me what I think about social media. <laughs> I think that gets to some of the major points, yeah. Uh, just uh, uh, somewhat disastrous for both our civic health and, and mental health, especially in certain demographics. Um, but you mentioned we might let's just go on to this at this point. Um, is there anything that can be done about it? You said you were you mentioned just in passing that there was something you were trying to uh, to do with respect to it. Yes. So um, so when I, uh, I I spent my career at the University of Virginia in the psychology department, and in 2011 I moved to NYU Stern to a business school. Um, just sort of a fluke that I that I came here and they liked me. I liked them. Once I got here, I. I decided to write a mission statement because, you know, in business, you have a mission statement and all that. So my mission statement um, is to use uh, my research and that of others in moral and social psychology to help important institutions work better. So I wrote that in 2012, which is actually just before everything got weird. Right. But I think it really has stood the test of time as to what I can focus on and what what America can focus on, uh, because we have to look institution by institution and, and strengthen them. And then we have to look at the causes, especially of what is devastating Gen Z. So let's start with the Gen Z thing. So if there are two major causes, there's the vast overprotection and there's the too early exposure to social media. Well, for the overprotection, um, I co-founded an organization with Lenore Skenazy, uh, the wonderful woman who wrote the book Free Range Kids. Uh, and so if, if listeners go to letgrow.org, they'll find all kinds of great ideas, especially if your kids are under 12, uh, elementary and middle school, um, all kinds of great ideas for how to help your kids become healthy mammals who have learned how to deal with things and do things themselves. And your home life will be happier and there'll be less conflict and your kids will uh, actually you know, be successful as adults rather than miserable failures. So I would urge people to go to letgrow.org. Um, and on the social media thing, um, there are a variety of, of organizations that are, that are working on this. If listeners go to thecoddling.com, the website for my book with Greg, uh, and then they click on solutions, um, better social media, uh, we've got a lot more information there they can, they can learn about and, um, and it'll help them set policy in their own homes if they have teens. Um, and then we have to work on institution by institution. So that means we have to look at K-12 schools. We have to look at universities. So I co-founded Heterodox Academy in 2015, not because of the students. It was originally just because I noticed 
that the social sciences, I'm a social psychologist, and in all the social sciences, they lean very far left. Now, leaning is okay as long as there are people on the other side to push back. But in many fields, there's nobody. Um, yeah, I think you say in your book, a good ratio is like three or four to one or two or three to one. Yeah, the- yeah three or four to one is fine. We'd be fine if we had three or, three or four to one left to right. Uh, but in my field, it's over 20 to one. Um, and in fact, I know the one guy. There's only one. You know, I'm joking. There's, there's, you know, there are several, but there's only one. There's only one who's out. There's only one who's publicly known. Yeah, I knew him when I was in graduate school too. Yeah, I think that was- yeah, right, right, that guy. Yeah, um, and so we advocate for uh, increasing viewpoint diversity, not as an end in itself, not because we love conservatives. I'm a centrist Democrat myself, um, but because we need. Viewpoint diversity, we need people to challenge. Otherwise, we get ridiculous, you know, poorly thought out, dogmatic, politicized thinking about the most important social problems like race and gender and immigration and, and child rearing and everything else. Uh, so if uh, so, especially, well, if you have, uh, I know uh, many philanthropists give to their alma mater, many philanthropists, probably the majority seem to be interested in education. So if you're interested in supporting improvements to education, the educational climate, I urge you to check out heterodoxacademy.org. Uh, consider supporting our work. Learn more about it. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic organization. Uh, thank you. And then but just to add on, so within Heterodox Academy, something that we created was called Open Mind. Um, it's a program to actually expose people to the best thinking, left, right, and libertarian, and teach them how to deal with it. Teach them why, we draw a lot on John Stuart Mill, teach them why you're better off engaging with people who think differently than you than people who think just like you. And so um, it, we ended up spinning it out, and it, it's its own 501c3, uh, because it turns out, um, even though we created it for college students, it turns out the need for it in the corporate world is exploding, because Gen Z, Gen Z, you know, kids born in 1996 and later, they graduated from college in 2018, they began to graduate and enter the work world. And so just after our book was published in 2018, suddenly we're hearing all these reports from, corporate, from the corporate world about students who, you know, they get a bad performance review and they, they freak out and their mother calls them. Um, so all kinds of weird things are happening in, not in all industries, but in industries that hire from the most progressive elite uh, uh, liberal arts schools and top universities. Um, those industries, the creative industries, uh, tech, um, and many nonprofits are really suffering from a huge rise of internal conflict as they try to figure out how to incorporate Gen Z. So openmindplatform.org is another uh, another organization that I co-founded to, to try to strengthen institutions. Is there, um, what is your thought about the future here besides the kind of work you're doing front lines, this sort of these, these organizations, um, all of which are, are, are clearly doing wonderful work. Um, is it just, is, is a way to kind of overcome these really bad health inducing <laughs> trends uh, lie in that kind of work? Or is there any kind of course, do you see any sort of internal intrinsic sort of course corrector that will kick in at some point? Um, you know, you can only get so unhealthy, so mentally, you know, distraught, so much disorder before people sort of light bulbs go on uh, in a kind of a mass way. Uh, what, what are your, or, or, yeah. So uh, I, I used to, I used to sort of lean pessimistic, but with, you know, with some real hope and, and some clear visions of how things could turn around. Now that I see, now that I see just how much social media has destroyed any possibility of shared truth, of shared facts, of consensus, 
now I'm more pessimistic. Mm. So I think that, you know, if, if we look in on America in 30 or 40 years, things will probably be better. Things will probably be much better just because things generally do get better over time. I, I agree with Steve Pinker and, and, uh, and various others who pointed out that every age people think things are going to hell, but yet, you know, century after century, life gets better and better. Um, but I think for the next five or 10 years, I suspect things are going to get worse, worse uh, for mental health, worse for uh, increasing conflict in our schools and institutions and corporations, and worse in our politics. So I don't see anything turning around very soon. Uh, but when it does turn around, I think what will need to happen is um, the, the new dynamics that social media has really given a huge megaphone to the far right and the far left, to extremists, people who are angry, people who are posturing and virtue signaling. And great research by more in common, if, if listeners Google um, the Hidden Tribes report, a brilliant report going into exactly what are the different subgroups politically of, of, and psychologically of Americans. And so the, the extremes are only about 12%, uh, 13% of the country. Uh, and the rest of us are what they call, or almost the rest of us are what they call the exhausted majority. Uh, and so, and that includes, so that includes, um, uh, you know, what, what I'm hoping um, is that basically center left and center right and a, the large number of people who aren't really affiliated um, can really come together and stand up to their extremes. Now, we're not seeing that on the right. I mean, we are seeing a few people have stood up to the kind of the Trumpist, um, you know, conspiracy theory stuff. Um, there are a few in the Senate and the House who've done that, but not very many. Um, and on the left, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a few professors standing up to the, you know, to the sort of the woke mania and the critical race theory stuff. So, but it's very few. Uh, and because people are afraid. I mean, your reputation can be destroyed. And it's not just your reputation. Things are so nasty now that if you stand up, to, you know, if, if a person on the right stands up to the far right or a person on the left stands up to the far left, like you're actually putting your family at a little bit of risk. Like people, you know, people will send threatening letters and death threats. Um, I don't know if anyone's been murdered yet because of this, but it's very scary to have people threatening the life of your children. So, and that happens. So, I don't know, you know, how we get past this. Uh, I'm thinking a lot about Viktor Navalny these days, you know, the Russian dissident who has just risked his life over and over again. And I'm trying to use him for inspiration to be a little bolder myself. Uh, but it's good. I think if the center left and center right, and I think here philanthropy could really do a lot. And we're seeing some of this. We are actually seeing some really nice collaborations, um, you know, like the Coke, the Coke Foundation and... Um, um, uh, Soros. Uh, Soros, thank you. Yes, Coke and Soros are teamed up a lot. And uh, we are seeing, when I've been to events for democracy, I'm very involved with various efforts to improve American democracy. And we often do see center right and center left um, uh, coming. You don't see, uh, I don't know any far right foundations, but uh, the far left ones tend not to show up. But I do think that philanthropy can play a big role in building bridges. And they are. There actually is a lot of support for bridge building organizations such as Open Mind. Very good. Dr. Hyde, thank you for being with us today. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, I don't, are, are you in the dumpster fire known as Twitter, or do you stay away from that dumpster fire? I'm in it, and I, you know, I kind of enjoy it and hate it at the same time. Um, and the, you know, if you're a journalist or a social scientist, you kind of need to be on it. Um, but my homepage is jonathanhyde.com, uh, and that links to all the other pages. And again, the, it's heterodoxacademy.org. And openmindplatform.org are, are my main philanthropic projects that are trying to address these problems. So uh, thank you very much, Jeremy, for, uh, for, for giving me this chance to talk to your 
listeners and, and to talk with you. I, as you can see, I kind of enjoyed talking about it. <laughs> I, it was very much the pleasure. It was ours. Thank you so much. Uh, it was an honor to talk to you and good luck with your work. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Um, we have a masterclass coming up, and I just want to end by inviting you to join us for it. In fact, it'll be my colleagues, Doug Schneider and Austin Detweiler, who will be leading it. Uh, it is on strategic development planning on Thursday, November 4th, 2021. Uh, Doug and Austin will share the hows and the whys surrounding um, creating an achievable, actionable strategic development plan. And it'll help you reach, maybe even exceed your fundraising goals. At least that's what we are intending. Use the code podcast for a 10% discount when you sign up. Seats are limited. I'm told there are only 12 spots left, and God only knows how many will be left by the time you're hearing this. So join us Thursday, November 4th. Uh, go to AmericanPhilanthropic.com, click on events, and you'll see it right there. It's in our In the Trenches strategic um, development planning session. Thanks very much.